Warning, this podcast contains adult themes, strong language, and descriptions of physical violence. Hope you enjoy. This is Perfectly Murderous. Kia ora and welcome to Perfectly Murderous with myself, Ryan Stevenson, and my good friend, Sandy King. How are you, Sandy? Guten Morgen, Ryan. Wie geht's? This is a session attack here in Sicilian. We are in uh, New Zealand. Ah. I don't think they say New Zealand. <laughs> I think they say, I think they have a new name for it. Neuzelandias. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the only thing I've got in German, I, I did study it for two years at school quite some time ago. Uh, all I can mm. remember is counting to 10 and then our teacher making a big deal when we got to number six. <laughs> and I can remember my Naratas is kaput, which is just uh, my, yeah, my town hall is broken. I've, I've actually told quite, I've basically told every German speaker I've met in the past 20 years that I used to live with a man at university who only knew how to say my town hall is broken in their language. <laughs> it's quite a niche. You have achieved some sort of fame. <laughs> That's genuine, by the way. I'm not just, I'm not just kissing up to you. That's, I've carried, carried you with me in my heart. <laughs> I'll, I'll be in Germany one day. Yeah. And there will be a town hall emergency where I need to convey that it's broken. Mm. And uh, I will pull it out the bag. Or it could be, you could be doing a journalism thing and they, you could have exposed like uh, some searing corruption at the heart of City Hall. Oh, I like <laughs> it. Goes all the way to the top. <laughs> My town hall is broken. Extra, extra. Read all about it. That would be quite cutting. My house is kaput. Should we get to the nuanced discussion of crushing grief so that we can um, we can rescue the atmosphere of this podcast? Of course, of course. But before we get to the grief, we, of course, come to test Sandy time, which is a, a little less uh, satisfying now you've started making notes, I must say. Well, what I've decided to do this week is instead of focusing too much on the protagonists that we've been hearing about in the book, I've been speculating as to what our real hero, Robert Steele, the title character of the Robert Steele Detective Trilogy, <laughs> might have been doing during the time period covered by chapters 12 and 13. Okay. Because we have heard a lot about David Stone and his wife, Anne, and in chapters 12 and 13, they had a very sad appointment with an unsympathetic consultant who gave her a, a diagnosis of liver cancer and then bundled them sort of straight out the door. It was a very bleak, sad reflection on, on what was going on. But I am fascinated by the so far unseen shadow figure who hangs over this trilogy like a like a puppet master. <laughs> so I was thinking, what would Detective Robert Steele, I assume he's a detective, he might at this point not have achieved that rank. I don't know, he might just be a, a junior police officer or something. But anyway, I thought uh, at that time, during chapters 12 and chapter 13, he was playing Scalextrix with his little son on a, on a track that he'd built up in the attic. And there was a particularly tense moment around corner 14, which had to be propped up with an old copy of the 1996 Rothman's Cricket Annual just to make the, the track stay together and you just had to remember to break a little bit early going into that turn otherwise you'd go flying off 
into a pile of discarded Beanie Babies that had been left by by his wife, who had believed them mistakenly to be a, a, a sound financial investment in the early 90s and then and signed them to the attic. So that's what he's been up to. It's a very interesting insight, because if you'd asked me what I think the detective Robert Steele's been up to, I would have said he spent the night with a woman he doesn't know, and he's woken up in the morning with her just the remnants of a of a bottle of vodka next to his bed mm. he's got dressed in an apartment he, he he's not sure about or if it is his apartment it's just a mattress on the floor he, he's been called into the the chief's office in the morning because um they're, they're worried about his, his badge ren- has been taken off him. yeah his renegade ways <laughs> he's, he's renegade ways he's, <laughs> he's out of control they are going to need both his gun and his badge <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. We'll see whose uh, whose depiction is more accurate as we go through. I suppose. I'd like it noted for the record that you've read this book. <laughs> so, if yours is more accurate, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make you Mystic Meg. <laughs> In the next chapter, when he wakes up with just the remnants of a bottle of vodka next to the bed. <laughs> Whereas, whereas, if I've hit the nail on the head, then I want serious respect. (laughs) Well, I think that's an excellent uh, summary of chapters 12 and 13 there. Good, good. Going on in uh, David Stone's uh, life and an Anne Stone, which I don't like saying because it's a grammatical nightmare. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, now I will never not think about it. Yeah, she's just Anne. She's got to be just Anne in this book. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they've they've received the news that it's terminal, haven't they? And just been out of shock, just been ushered out of the out of the hospital and been told to go home, and they've just obediently obeyed just for yes, just because they're dumbfounded, I think. And he's he suddenly realised that there were questions that they didn't ask, including how long has she got? Yeah, and I don't know for sure, but I can imagine that. Those chapters are quite real. Fairly close to what happened. Right, let's continue on then with chapter 14. Okay. Chapter 14 of Getting Away With Murder. Sitting in the car, he was aware of reaching out and gently squeezing her hand as they drove home, utterly destroyed by the news. He couldn't speak, couldn't express his thoughts at all. It was an overbearing dark silence compounded by a deadly mind-numbing despair this time. The time was going to be short. He knew that without having to be told. Suddenly he realised she must know that as well. What was she thinking? But there was just silence, dark thoughts of despair. The weather seemed to echo his feelings. It was even darker now. Hostile, threatening clouds filled the whole horizon, which made the journey home even worse than the inward one. They went home totally resigned to her fate. It was as if time stood still. Everything was in slow motion. It bore no relation to the real time it took to reach home. Unable to think, he didn't notice anything on the way back. Just the same thought over and over again, just bouncing around his brain, banging against his skull, hurting his head. She's going to die. Must be a... I can't imagine that that feeling of finding out that somebody's going to pass away. And what do you say? I mean, obviously, in that situation, nothing, because there just aren't words. But uh, it's been an awful, awful trip back. Yeah, it's it's almost. Uh, I I don't know. I find I find that's a line when I've heard terrible news that I go to a lot. 
actually. Maybe everyone does, I, I don't really know. Where the thought that comes into my head is, is that there aren't words but you want to say them anyway. Mm. You know, I think I think at that point, all you really crave is sort of company and other people to be there with you. And in that moment where you haven't had a time to sit down and talk it through with anybody else, you can't even talk it through between you. And you don't really know in that moment how to approach the subject with your partner, because obviously you want to be led by, by them on this. Mm. It must be incredibly lonely and isolating. I can imagine you don't want to talk about the news you've just received you don't want to face reality yet because nothing's really sunk in mm. but then you can't make small talk about anything else you're going oh it's it's graying over isn't it oh it might rain <laughs> yes yes if anything this weather's even worse than it was on the way here <laughs> exactly doesn't it mirror the underlying state of our existence <laughs> So you, you just can't say anything, can you? It would just be, like you said, just have, I mean, just that, hold someone's hand and just the presence of somebody, I suppose. Yeah. And that's about it. And also, you know, what what must it be like to be given that news as the patient? I suppose you never know. And I suppose it's different for everyone. And it, it would depend what stage of the illness you're at and how you feel physically and how you feel about life and death and everything. But, you know, I suppose the reality is that at some point, most of us will be given some sort of news a bit like that or or work it out for ourselves mm. i don't know i don't know what that'll be like but you know sort of a unique moment very hard to articulate i suppose if it's before your time and you're still quite young and you you envisage that you've got plenty of life still ahead of you and you're planning to enjoy grandchildren's lives and and all of those things mm. it would just be complete and utter shock that i can imagine just that just that shock just absolutely reeling just not knowing uh -huh. what to do because the news just hasn't sunk in at all and i can imagine that lasting for days and days weeks even uh -huh. on arrival neither of them said anything they just huddled together in front of the television he tried to make her comfortable but she couldn't settle constantly moved around as the pain ate at her neither of them wanted to eat and found it almost impossible to keep anything down anyway the feeling of despair always there but never mentioned it felt as if the world had slowed down. They were living in a bubble, just waiting. Just waiting for fate to play its final card. What do you do when faced with the inevitable? Nothing, because there's no real point in trying to do anything. So you just sit and wait. Your brain empties of rational thought and you go into a pointless waiting game where time has no meaning. You could do nothing, so you don't bother. And so it goes on. You fall into a trap where worry and despair override everything else. Hours of despair, that turns into days of waiting. It all just merges into weeks of nothing. Eventually, they were contacted by the hospice nurses, who gave them some basic information. Showed them how to apply for a wheelchair, how to write for a blue badge. But here was no encouragement, no hope. In fact, there were no wheelchairs either. They would just have to manage. Try the Red Cross the only suggestion they could make. A commode to make the painful visits to the toilet unnecessary. Yes, that could be arranged, but you have to collect it from the county depot. Where's that? Oh, just 25 miles away. Hope you have a car. You'd expect it to return it back afterwards or you'll be charged. Just bloody paperwork. No treatment. She just wanted to be at home. God, this was going to be hard for us. It was just a matter of time. This would be their swan song. And he felt the despair start to overwhelming at the prospect of life without Anne. Bye, Anne. Goodbye forever. And that is your chapter 14. Yeah, that time, that sort of limbo time when 
you can't start to grieve, but at the same time, you presumably can't truly enjoy very much either. Sounds horrifying. Mm. I think he's captured it quite well there. Almost a numbness that just pervades mm. into everything and nothing's being achieved. There's actually no real enjoyment to life. It's just just waiting, 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 waiting for the inevitable. And it all just blurs into one mm. big haze of my feeling is that this is some of the best writing in the book so far because it's it combines the sort of terse direct prose with some fairly enlightening insights into what it is to go through this moment like there's some surprises in there Mm. i loved what do you do when faced with the inevitable nothing and then that whole section talking about how when nothing's going to work what's the point in doing anything so you just don't you just kind of exist and almost vegetate just before we read that we kind of guessed about what that might feel like having never really experienced it ourselves and i think that mm. the chapter captured it probably more accurately than we did yeah without doubt and it's quite a change as well you've talked about it before the the shift in moods it was only a couple of chapters ago that we were laughing and uh, yeah. about the bomb exploding in the in the waiting room of the yeah. hospital and that's quite an angry sort of hate-filled chapter brought out of despair and frustration and now it's just sadness just running through everything there is the old the, the old sort of saying about how the opposite of what is it the opposite of love isn't hate it's nothing and like this strange relationship with very strong emotions actually having more in common with each other than feeling something very passionate and then feeling nothing at all this feels like the bit you know in a film or a tv series where an explosion happens or something and afterwards the characters are kind of moving around the space and all you hear is like the ringing in their ears and there's smoke everywhere so you can't you have no sense of orientation no one's got any kind of purpose they're just trying to work out what the hell has happened Mm. all the senses have sort of shut down that feels like where we're at at the moment we're just all you can do in that moment is just exist you can't make any plans you can't come up with any strategies you can't mitigate anything you can't alleviate anything you you just sit there and wait for time to pass Mm. which almost feels crueler than you know than the actual moment of losing someone to be told right well you've got a little bit of time but to know that you can't use it in any way that's joyful or productive or creative i don't know i mean i'm sure the experience is different for everyone there are no doubt examples of people who went on to write phenomenal novels or paint beautiful paintings or something after being given a, a terminal diagnosis but it feels like in that in that moment you just sit and wait for life to screw you over again very painful to hear yeah it sounds like Anne they, they've both worked out that Anne really hasn't got very much time left and she's not mm. comfortable and she's in pain so it's very hard to enjoy a moment yes yeah 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 it's not like you can go oh let's have a day out on the beach and just forget everything for a day it's not like you can do that if you're true constantly in pain no that's true there's also i think quite an important plot point just dropped fairly casually in Hmm. which is that she doesn't want any treatment she doesn't want any hospital time she just wants to stay at home did i get that right Or, or was it that there just wasn't any available i When you read it, it sounded like she'd sort of chosen to just take the simple route. I think, well, I know in in real life Mm. that my my stepmom wanted to be at home, which is very, which is difficult for the person who's then caring as well. I can understand that that feeling of just wanting to be home and have everything that you have normally and 
you're most comfortable at home. Yeah. But also it becomes very isolating for that person who's taking care of you, especially if it's just the two of you. Definitely, yeah. Right. You ready for chapter 15? Yeah, okay. <laughs> just about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The memories were becoming too much for him. He grew increasingly upset at them. Memories of how she became too ill to work. And for the first time in her life, she went on long-term sick leave, having to look after her and how he stopped working soon after because there was no support. Playing unpaid nursemaid, he cooked for her, but she couldn't keep anything down. She couldn't get upstairs, couldn't even go to the toilet unaided. Life became fraught. There were arguments. He remembered money ran short, and they were both getting exhausted for different reasons. She just became weaker, whilst he just became more frustrated with a system that didn't seem to care or help. She couldn't get upstairs now, and just lay curled on the sofa in pain. She wouldn't hear of a hospice. That was an admission of the inevitable. Then there was the letter. She brought up the subject of the letter again. What it meant. Could they fight it? Anything but the letter. He didn't want to talk about that. It would mean trouble. Eventually, he knew she would bring his ex-wife into the conversation, and this time was no exception. And they started to argue about how she, how she had ruined the first marriage, interfered in theirs, how she had hurt him over the boys and constantly used the CSA to get at him, spoil things between them, take their money and now their home. She grew more and more upset, tears and anger now, shouting, anger aimed directly at him. She picked up a magazine from the table and hurled it at him. Although she was weak, there was real venom in her actions now and she started to become hysterical. In vain, he tried to calm her, but that simply made it worse. She became distraught and upset, visibly weakened before his eyes. His only recourse was to get their doctor to come out to sedate her before she collapsed or, or get her to, into hospital. Becoming desperate, he began to panic at her reaction. Grabbing the phone, he managed to get through to the doctor's surgery and convinced the receptionist it was urgent. After a few minutes, he got through to the doctor. She needs to be in hospital now, the doctor said. Can you get her down here while I contact the hospital? I'm going to try and get her in through A&E. She needs treatment, not a sedative. Luckily, she was already dressed and just needed to be helped into the car, although that was easier said than done because she was so weak, as well as being upset now. But she offered little resistance. She just quietly sobbed, her face turned away from him, just staring out of the car window, unable to find a tissue the front of her coat to the brunt of her tears as she sat there, but sniffing back her runny nose. He offered a crumpled handkerchief which she grabbed and wiped her face in embarrassment at her at her earlier outburst of raw emotion. Five minutes later, he was met at the reception by the doctor, who simply handed them a letter. Go to A&E, they're expecting you, was all he said. It was that simple, a letter, and she would be admitted. Then why had they wasted so much time playing bloody silly waiting game? Looking back, he didn't really remember the journey. It just went as fast, very, very bloody fast, not even vaguely legal. Who cared if they were killed en route? At least that would be quick. They'd go together. He rolled over in the bed. He couldn't possibly let anyone know what he was thinking. Those memories, watching someone die before his eyes. It was all too much. And he drifted back into an exhausted sleep. It's funny how you get these reminders every so often that, that all of this is flashback. Yes. And he is still in a hospital bed. You know, it is still very immediate. It's a really interesting choice to, you know, you could have told this story just in chronological order, mm. but by placing the moment at which she goes right at the start of the of the story, you obviously create high stakes, you draw people in, mm. but also there's this slight unreliable narrator thing where you know that the guy who's remembering all this stuff is 
is heavily sedated and it gives it a kind of dreamlike quality. Very fueled by emotion, very visceral, instinctive thought process. And also by having Anne die right at the start of the novel, you're also drawn into the inevitable as well. There's no, mm. is she going to survive part of it as well. There's none of that drama yeah. playing out. You're experiencing it with David Stone. You know that she's going to die. There is no miracle. There is no cure. Uh-huh. You're just going through all of it with him. Yeah. And it's just this prolonged period of despair and sadness as things slowly deteriorate. It's quite interesting that he's moved away from the, the anger quite a lot. There are odd snips of, of anger, but it has shifted quite a lot just deep sadness that's interesting because one of the things that i took from this chapter was a sense that this was the moment where the anger was fermenting in it ah. i don't quite know when it was but i i made a note quite early on in that that he's he's getting more and more angry with the system that doesn't help and then there's the anger that's maybe sort of transferred from her towards the ex-wife and i got a quite a strong sense of like the pressure boiling a little bit of foreshadowing maybe of what's going to come later in the book. But I don't know how informed that is by the fact that I know what's going to happen later in the book. Mm. We do have the, the subject of the letter brought up again, don't we? And how it's, yeah again, the catalyst to a fight to and going to hospital. Yeah. It's played the same role again. Yeah, that's a very good observation, isn't it? That that it is it's a catalyst again. It's a it's not just that thing we always argue about. It's that thing that leads to to the worst things. Mm. There's quite a few things that start to be revealed about the ex-wife as well mm. or around the marriage anyway. Talk around certainly, you know, you talk about the unreliable narrator, but the fact that the perception that she's ruined the first marriage. Mm-hmm. The the perception that she's then into with that marriage and then she's hurt him uh with the boys and constantly used the child support agency to to get at him and spoil things take the money take their home so it's uh getting a little insight so he he obviously views it as quite a toxic well a toxic aftermath of that relationship that's still going on decades into in the future yeah yeah i mean a lot of those angry views are ands but are presented sort of uncritically Mm. it must be a straight i don't necessarily want to want to delve into too much of the biography at this point but it must be a strange the experience of reading this for the first time must have been a really odd one that i'd like to talk about at some point Mm. because you know we're in a hinterland between honest father-son conversation and invented friction and i don't know i'm fascinated i'm always fascinated by the fact that he chose to send you the book ostensibly to say like i'll write it to write what do you think i mean i remember reading these chapters and just it was just really heartbreaking to hear because there are little Mm. snippets in there that reveal the truth behind what's happening things like not being able to get a wheelchair applying for a blue badge I, i know those things happened yeah so when you have those little details in the novel that you you know are true then you're presented with all of these emotional side of things, these experiences that only the two people there will have known whether they've happened or not. Yeah. The, the chapters are so sad and that I can only presume they're, they're memories mm-hmm. with perhaps tiny details of invention in them. Yeah, like they're, they're true even if they're not literally how it happened. Mm. They've got a higher truth. They've got a sense of like telling a real story. Yeah, some very tough chapters to read there, aren't they? Very tough. 
I also feel like it's it's coming to a to a boil with like you said you yeah. can, you can feel the pressure building. Mm-hmm. We know that Anne passes away, and we we've witnessed some of those chapters of Anne passing away as well. But we've revisited it, and it's coming again. And this time, it seems like a longer build up to it. Before we were presented, say for instance, with chapter one, yeah, it was one chapter that was a page that we've got to the moment of Anne passing pretty much right there. And we've had other chapters since where we've revisited and perhaps over one or two chapters, we've reached a moment with, with slightly different details of Van passing away. Mm-hmm. But now we've kind of sunk deeper and gone back further in time. And I feel like this really is, I feel like we're not going to rehash all of these moments again. There's, there's too much now. We're, we're getting to the real details and really building up to that that final moment when she passes away yeah 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 and it will be much um, uh, you know, a very very different a much more loaded experience to hear about it again the second time around mm. now that we've seen the run-up to it and i feel like we're on a path at the moment where we're building to, to and passing but then it's that feels like it's just over the horizon it's not very far away mm. and then we still have the rest of the book there so how is david stone going to react to after Anne has finally passed away and he's presumably out of hospital or moves on to the next yeah. trail of yeah, yeah, yeah. his thoughts. I don't want to bang on about Robert Steele, but I do want me some Robert Steele in this book soon. <laughs> I think we've got about I think I've got about two more episodes of this before, you know, I'm just <laughs> It's really funny that you you've mentioned Robert Steele at the start and you were sort of surmising about <laughs> what he'd been up to because Robert Steele captured my imagination too. So this week I decided to do a bit of investigation into who Robert Steele is. Oh. So I did a bit of an internet search on Detective Robert Steele and there are two hits. So the first hit is Robert Steele from the Detective Trilogy and the second hit, mm. Robert Steele from America, who's a former CIA agent. So I had a look at him and he's quite, well, I'd say he's best known for some of his conspiracy theories. So he's made statements that he believed that NASA kept uh, a human, human slaves on Mars and kidnapped them when they were babies and transported them to a a colony over there. Okay. Okay. How, how do you, I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming (laughs) it's quite difficult to become a detective. Like you must have to do some, you must have to demonstrate some degree of critical thinking and yet you also <laughs> believe that nasa ran a slave colony on mars <laughs> i can imagine him investigating a missing child and just going well we all know what's happened there right Case closed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Solved>. nasa have <laughs> abducted them they're on the rocket already something of a cop-out isn't it <laughs> maybe that's why he made it to detective he's just solving all of these cases of missing people <laughs> you've you've done it you've done it again steel <laughs> you magnificent bastard <laughs> One of the reasons he's made it into the news recently is he was one of the first people to claim that COVID-19 was a hoax. Oh, good. And reportedly, he's one of the people who has claimed that and then subsequently passed away from COVID. Ooh. So that's why he made it into the news. So is our is our hero, Detective Robert Steele, already dead? That would be a strange, like, mm. double autobiography or double biography. I'd love to get all the way through this book and just reach a point where... <laughs> We don't be Detective Robert Steele until the last chapter, and there's just a raid, and they burst through a door, and it's just like, "That's right, <laughs> I'm Detective Robert Steele." He comes in like Fortinbras at the end of Hamlet, just to be like, "Well, this is going badly. Everyone, follow me. We'll <laughs> we'll do things differently from now on." 
I'm I'm interested in the um in the in the name coincidences thing. While you were telling me about Robert Steele, I've, I've just taken the liberty of googling Ryan Stevenson. Do you know who your most famous oh gosh name alike is? Is it a footballer? Uh, no, sorry, it's an American Christian musician and guitarist who primarily plays a contemporary Christian music and worship style of music. Oh no, that that is actually me. Oh well, congratulations! You're doing quite well for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> One day I will tell you about the Sandy King from the Old West because that is uh, that's a riff. I'll sa- I'll save that for for one of the tell us what's been happening in your life right in the podcast slot. You can save that for for next week. I want to hear all about it, not the future. <laughs> I want to hear about it next week. All right, I will. I'll do some reading to you. Get my own back. <laughs> All right, Sandy. Well, no pressure from um, again the, some of the, <laughs> the the saddest chapters of uh, of the novel so far. But mm. what is your happy story to to take us away? It has it has been a, a fairly busy, work filled, and an uneventful time in my life. But my highlight of the week was while running a, a circus skills workshop, telling a slightly challenging young man who had been frustrating me a little bit over the course of the morning that there was. A truly famous clown whose pièce de résistance was putting the custard pie into his own face and persuading this young man to fill a plate with whipped cream and then just splat it into his own face. I think he had fun. Um, and yet it was also satisfying for me because I don't think ethically I could have done that myself. But... With a little creativity. Uh, and I mean, you know, the audience laughed. A good time was had by all. But there was just a very slight edge of satisfaction there. I love that. I've got a strange job. Not once when I was teaching was to, <laughs> did I ever manage to, to achieve that. I wish I had. Uh, that is just top work. That's bravo. <laughs> bravo to you, Sandy. <laughs> I like the idea that one day that a child will listen to this podcast and go, it was all a lie. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, we shall leave it there for this week. And you never know, perhaps Robert Steele might pay us a visit next time. You make it sound like Christmas Eve. If you you hang up your case files, then maybe Detective Robert Steele will visit during the night, pin up some photos all over your wall and connect them with bits of string on on little pins. It depends if he's finished playing Scale Electrics Mm. or if he's woken up from the drunken stupor that he's in. I was going to say, make sure you leave out a little saucer of vodka. (laughs) It's one of his quirks. He likes to lap his vodka. (laughs) (laughs) Detective Robert the Cat Steel. (laughs) Right, I'm going to say goodbye. All right, Sandy. Well, have a lovely week. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye.